From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. The idea that the culture of the team that I really wanted to create was not a culture of a team that I had been on before, but rather it was almost an anti-culture of what I had observed in other places and never felt like I belonged in. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Today, my guest is Mike Gamson, CEO of Relativity and former global head of sales at LinkedIn. Mike's career could have moved in a very different direction had he decided to take a posh job at an investment bank. But Mike has never been one to follow the well-trodden path. Throughout his life, he's made surprising moves and has found himself swimming in deep water. But thanks to a strong network of advisors and a willingness to own up to his own shortcomings, he's seen incredible success. Growing LinkedIn's revenue from tens of millions to multiple billions is only one of many examples. On today's show, Mike reflects on the values he learned as a child that have allowed him to navigate the complexities of life and tech. He'll also share some unorthodox ways he discovered to maintain a healthy work-life balance, give back to his community, and extend a helping hand to talented individuals who simply need a chance to succeed. Let's jump into the conversation. All right, Mike Gamson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I appreciate it, Justin. Thank you. Mike, I'm excited to dive into a lot of the stories, a lot of the ideas, but most importantly, I want to find out, we got to start with what in the world was Viva Burritos all about? Viva Burritos uh, is a very popular part of my LinkedIn profile. One never knows when you put something on a LinkedIn profile, but that was my <laughs> that was my first job out of school. That was a very, very short version of the story. It's a much longer story, is that I narrowly escaped life as an investment banker. Uh, after getting a job at a at a Manhattan investment bank out of college and didn't show up and instead waited tables for the summer, got a one-way ticket to Argentina with a buddy of mine after that summer. And we went north by bus through South America until we landed in Costa Rica. We ran out of money, needed something to do to make money and opened up a little restaurant and then a surf shop in a youth hostel. That is Viva Burritos. So you had you had the offer in hand for the, the iBank. And you said, I'm walking away from it. Yeah, more than in hand, I actually accepted it. And you know, I went to like the exciting, fancy sushi lunch in New York, and I met with the rest of my class. And I was supposed to show up, you know, not too long after that. And I had a call and rescind, or I guess not rescind, but like tell them I'm not coming. Yeah, that must have been a painful conversation. It was and liberating at the same time. What, what possessed you? Was it a moment of just sheer fear or did you have this epiphany where you're like, this is not my path? You know, I have to say that I can't take credit for the the catalyst was a close friend of mine uh, named Jim, who wrote me a letter, basically called me out as a hypocrite that I was going to do that. I was an art and comparative religion, double major in a liberal arts college. And I had long railed against the man. And (laughs) there I was about to go uh, work on Wall Street, which seemed counter to those things that I had professed to care about. And so in the way that good friends can, he basically called me out and said, what are you doing? Let's go have an adventure instead. All right. This idea of being true to your values, it's going to, it's going to come out multiple times. And I think ultimately is the, 
the uh, catalyst behind many of the decisions you make. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, the Adlerian parenting model. Mm. Let, yeah. so, so most listeners are not going to know what this is all about. Tell us what yeah. this is about and how it impacted your life. Oh, wow, I love it. I have not been asked about this uh, in a very long time. So my, my mom, Bryony Gamson, worked at the Alfred Adler Institute for many years, maybe 12 years or so when I was a kid. She was, she was a public school English teacher, turned full-time mom, turned serious parenting-focused uh, person. She was really interested in the discipline of parenting. And through her own travels as a parent with, with three kids, she found the work of Rudolf Dreikers and, and Alfred Adler, two psychologists who were well-known for their thinking on how to raise kids in a certain kind of way. So she became very attached to this way of thinking. She raised my sisters and I in this way. And she later worked at the graduate school that taught how to do this for other folks because she became so into it. And there's just some fantastic applied common sense methodologies here. It's the kind of thing where now as a parent, I recognize how difficult it is to be consistent and you know stay true to what you're really shooting for. So I have even more respect for what my mom did. But some of the big ideas in the theory are around... The idea that, that children certainly and people generally will rise or fall to the level of expectation put upon them. And so if you assume the best and you have high expectations for your kids, they, they will be more likely to achieve those things. If you have low expectations, they will probably underperform their potential. Other, other ideas there are around you know, the fewer rules, the fewer rebellions. And so it's a very non-restrictive type of parenting that's built on trust and communication. It's also about treating kids like adults, always speaking to them as an adult and respecting them. Ultimately, the goal is to try to produce kids who are independent thinkers and who make a positive contribution to society. So not so different in intent from many other parenting styles, but the application of these things and trying to deliver a high self-esteem uh, to a kid by techniques like separating the deed from the doer. You know, in our, in our house, you were never a bad boy or a bad girl. You may have done a bad thing. But the separation between that action and you as a human being creates a foundation over time of high self-esteem. Or the last one maybe I'll share is uh, there's, a, there's an attempt to separate extrinsic motivation from intrinsic motivation. So, for example, if in, in many you know, loving households, a kid come home, comes home with good grades and a report card and the parent says, I'm so proud of you. And in the Delarian theory, it's rather instead of I'm so proud of you, which teaches the kid to seek your pride, instead recognizes the kid's work and says, I see how hard you worked on this. I hope you're proud of yourself. Uh, and so those like small turns of language are about building self-esteem and independent thinking. I like the point you led with, which is uh, children. And I think all of us rise to the level of expectation. I was in a, I've shared this before, but I was in an amazing session with Seth Godin, three hours and Seth walks out and he had no material prepared because I'm just going to take questions from the floor. And I'm like, how much money did I spend to listen to a three hour Q&A? <laughs> it was phenomenal, though. And uh, by the end, people were just like raising their hand. We were talking about everything. So I raised my hand at one point. I've got three daughters. And I said, Seth, how do you raise confident young women? And he said, you give them hard challenges and let them figure it out. 
It was a profound insight. And so I went home and I remember thinking to myself, what's a hard challenge? And at, at that moment, my daughter came to me and said, dad, let's go to the movies. And I was like, perfect. I will finance this venture. You tell me what to do. And she had to figure out the bus schedule, what time the movie was starting. Love it. And I tell you, it, it's a simple thing, but it was one of the best experiences I've ever had with my kids. And they pulled it off and they come back and they say, dad, I learned how to ride a bus because of that experience. I love it. It's a great idea. So um, I did a little bit of research. I knew this was a big part of your life. And, and these themes, I, I was fascinated knowing you see how they carry through in your life. Number one, the ability to care for uh, the ability to care for the care of others. Number two, this idea that belonging is important. Number three, being, um, being focused on defining your lifestyle and not letting others define it for you. Family is a constellation. Uh, equality and mutual respect and encouragement. Those are all, those are all underlying principles. So uh, clearly they rubbed off on you in, in, in some way or another. Yeah. Right. I think, Go ahead. I, I think those are, I think those are all, you know, those are all, I think, compelling ideas and, and things that I, I do think, um, you know, I resonate with, with deeply. I think, you want me to just pick, pick one or two yeah. of them kind of poke, poke it, at it? Yeah. So you know, I, I think first time maybe living life you want to lead or the lifestyle that you want to lead. For, for me, that's about recognizing that I think many of us have more agency over our time and over our life than we often give ourselves credit for. And that a lot of the frustrations that I see in peers or in colleagues or in friends have to do with feelings of frustration that are related to feeling trapped in a situation or an experience or a relationship or a, uh, a situation of any real type where they aren't expressing their full agency over that experience. And so I've really tried to understand, at least for myself, where the boundaries of that can be expressed. And then within a work context or a personal life context, just to be explicit about those areas where for me, it's really important to live in a certain way. That might mean uh, not missing a birthday for my kids or for work travel, or that might mean uh, I'm, I'm generally the cook in our family, and I really love making breakfast for the kids and seeing everyone off on their day, as an example. And so asserting myself on that kind of life, that is the life that I want to lead. And, and then using the, the mechanism of sometimes I picture myself as an old man in a rocking chair in the part of my life where I'm mostly recollecting, I'm doing less, and I'm reviewing my prior actions more. And I think about how do I hook that guy up today while well, I'm still mostly a doer, less a recollector. What can I do today to really hook that guy up so that when I'm that person sitting there at some point a long time in the future, I can look back and say, I'm really happy from that vantage point with the decisions I made on how to lead my life and make the trade-offs that I wanted to make. And so that, that exertion of agency over one's time and experience is something that's, that's really important to me. Let me, let me, let me add something. I, a lot of people talk about this. You take this very seriously. You've got as part of your career, you've had to travel a lot. You have a very interesting routine uh, related to travel, the amount of time you allocate to it and how that impacts your family. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I, I, I smile as you ask me that because, you know, uh, two, two years into the pandemic, it's, I can barely remember, remember what regular work travel is like, <laughs> you know? And so, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to express not what my last, you know, 20 ish months have been, but rather what my life for many years was before then. And I did, I had a very rigorous travel schedule. You know, I was definitely in that category of person who 
was in global services on United and flew hundreds of thousands of miles a year. And for many years, while, while at least my wife and I were having kids, we were stressed, as many families are, about the trials and tribulations of trying to be together while having careers that we cared about. And so we ended up taking our kids on the road. And Elise is an artist, and she switched from largely physical making to largely digital making so that we could be together on the road. And we traveled together as a family all the time, which has its own set of challenges and frustrations and, and difficult points, uh, but was really wonderful. And then there's other things like, you know, you can't control when you come home on a plane. Sometimes planes are late. But what I realized, at least in our family, when I came home on a Tuesday night and I was late, it's a very different impact than when I came home on a Friday night and I was late. Yeah. So since you can't control the plane coming home, what you can control is accepting a meeting somewhere else on a Friday. And so I just stopped traveling on Fridays for you know all but the very, very most important pieces. And so just kind of chipping away at those things that if left unattended can add a lot of frustration and can make the some, something like travel feel like a burden instead of a benefit, for me, were a big part of the recipe for success on it. Yeah. I know also uh, taking your kids to school is a big deal. Cooking is a big deal. Yep. It seems like you've defined these are the things that matter to me, and you build your your time around those things. It's true. You know, I I was very I, I come from privilege, and, and I don't mean the privilege of great wealth. I mean the privilege of a loving family who my parents are still together in the house that I grew up in, and I live two and a half miles from them. And I when I think about my childhood, I was extraordinarily fortunate. It was a really idyllic childhood, and without trauma and tragedy, and generally it was a joyful childhood. And I aspire to be part of a family of this generation now where, where I'm a partner to Elise and a parent where we're trying to deliver that kind of childhood for our kids. And so for me, part of that is being really present with the little stuff. You know, I'm, I rejoice in the domestic routine of everyday life. And, and I don't, by the way, and I don't mean like every time I'm sitting there doing the dishes being like, I love the dishes. I mean, I don't, that's not really my life. But I'm doing the dishes every day. And in the macro sense, I love that I am. I want to see, I want my kids to see that I have a serious career as a technology professional and I wash some serious dishes and I make food every day and we do the work together. That yeah. stuff's important to me. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the professional career. You, yeah. uh, you spent some time in product marketing and then you joined LinkedIn eventually to become the global head of sales for LinkedIn, but you had never really carried a bag before that. What, what got you into sales and, and how did it evolve? Yeah. So, so I would say that that's almost entirely correct. The, the only caveat is for, for six quarters, when I was in my early twenties, I was an inside sales rep for a high transaction sales product, but okay. that's about it. All right. and, then, and then I ended up managing that team. And so in some respects, I had almost no sales experience. In other respects, I've been selling my whole life. I was definitely one of those kids who was just born to kind of hustle for stuff. I had a lemonade stand. I had a lawn mowing business. I shoveled driveways. I sold t-shirts in college. At anything that you could do across all the different uh, kind of growing up moments where there was some kid who was selling something, that was me. And so it was definitely an intrinsic part of my nature for whatever reason. But in terms of being actually schooled in sales deeply, I was not by the time I got to LinkedIn, nor did I think about myself as a salesperson. You know, the, the five years prior to joining LinkedIn, to your point, I had been doing product marketing and product management. And I fancied myself 
if I had to think about a definition, a professional definition of self, I would have chosen product marketer if someone asked me. And so when I got to LinkedIn, after a year or so of doing other work there, which was basically trying to figure out new businesses that we should start at a time in the company's history where we didn't have a really advanced set of thinking yet about what the businesses were going to be that drove the company, uh, I really rejected the idea of being a sales leader. And it, and it wasn't until you know I, I spoke to a few folks who really influenced me when the opportunity presented itself that it was something that I should pursue. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So just to put this in context, you arrive at LinkedIn, it's it's generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue. You leave LinkedIn, and it's multiple billions of dollars in revenue. And it is very unique to find someone that builds a sales organization that scales from point A to point B the way that you scaled the organization. How did you do that? How, how were you not putting yourself out of a job, but staying ahead of the curve? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say I got really lucky, to be totally honest. You know, so, and I don't, I don't mean that in a false modesty way. I mean that when, when anyone joins a startup, and LinkedIn was a startup when I joined it. It was a one-room company. You don't really know what it's going to turn into. Maybe Reed Hoffman knew. Reed has extraordinary vision and really wrote down on a piece of paper what the company ultimately turned into pretty, pretty darn closely. But you don't really know. At the time, LinkedIn had competitors that we really cared about, competitors that don't really exist today. You know, Plaxo, Spoke, et cetera. At the time, that was a big deal. And those were, those were companies we feared. And as, as the company grew, it was also a moment where enterprise software and internet didn't really go together. And companies like LinkedIn were really forced by the market to choose, are you a consumer internet company or are you an enterprise software company? There wasn't really in 2007, 2008, great examples of companies that were doing both. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, salespeople and the idea that we would need salespeople to sell our product was looked at as something like a bug, not a feature. And companies like Google were being put on a pedestal for, at the time, the idea that there was almost no salespeople that were necessary to generate many billions of dollars of revenue. Now, of course, over time, that proved to be not exactly the case. And, and salespeople created an amazing amount of value in, in so many of the most valuable companies in the world. But again, in 2007, 2008, that's what Silicon Valley was largely talking about. So when LinkedIn discovered really the killer app, that was going to be the talent solutions business that drove the, the first real waves of major financial growth in the company. And it was pretty clear that salespeople were going to be one of the main distribution techniques for those products. There was quite a bit of dialogue and debates and argument, frankly, inside the company about how we did that, who should do that, et cetera. And you know, I was a young and inexperienced person who was kind of pushing a rock up a hill on that. I thankfully had extraordinary mentorship who were in my corner helping me out with the questions that I should be asking. And as I stepped on landmines, you know, helping me out of those dangerous situations. But uh, yeah, there's a number of times where I absolutely could have been fired. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to have, have made it through all those different waves of growth because it's just an extraordinary life experience that I'm very grateful for. So, so clearly there are advantages to having experience. At the same time, there are advantages to not having experience because it's it's kind of a blank slate. 
In your situation, what advantages did you discover because you hadn't been a formal sales executive before? Gosh, Justin, I don't know if I've ever thought about my inexperience in that moment having been an advantage. But if I had to, because I mostly felt like I was doing everything I could just to keep up with the geyser that we had discovered. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a huge amount of mistakes that, that I made along the way. So I'm highly cognizant of all the things that I would do differently and better next time if I were in that role. But I would say if there's anything that was an advantage, perhaps it was the idea that the culture of the team that I really wanted to create was not a culture of a team that I had been on before, but rather it was almost an anti-culture of what I had observed in other places and never felt like I belonged in. And in my only other experience working in a technology company, there was a strong sales culture, but it was more of a traditional sales culture where it was primarily, primarily but not exclusively strong men, ex-athletes, kind of walk in the sales floor with a baseball bat, you know, and a headset on and a golf club in the hand kind of scene, which was a great scene for them. I just never felt like I belonged in that scene. And so perhaps if I had grown up and had real sales experience in a sales culture that was more of a traditional uh, enterprise sales culture, I wouldn't have felt like I could have influenced the ultimate direction of the culture of LinkedIn sales team, which is something that probably is the top of my list of things that I was proud of from being part of from that experience. There was a very different vibe. I, I spent many years in sales at Oracle. And I think that might be more of the quote unquote traditional sales environment that you were describing. Very, very focused on numbers and chewing people up and spitting them out if they're not delivering. And I remember coming to uh, LinkedIn, the first sales presentation I sent through with Mike D actually. I remember pulling him aside after and I said, Mike, this was like a quarter in, but you didn't talk about the number. And he said, we'll take care of the number. The number will be fine. And I was just blown away. And sure enough, like he delivered the number, but it was in such a different way. And it kind of honestly blew my mind that you could do that in sales. Yeah. The, 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 the thought process was really around results are the outflow of other things going right. Mm-hmm. And so if you focus exclusively on the, the output, the result, you often miss the critical causal drivers that create that output. And so what, what we did in our team, and, and, I, and the we here is so important because there is LinkedIn would not have been as successful as it has been without an extraordinary group of people who not only joined in the you know, late, late 2000s, but really over the last 10 years, there's just been amazing talent that have joined and have driven the culture and driven the execution. But the idea was focus on the talent, focus on the inputs. And the result outputs will largely take care of themselves, really deliver that customer value and really deliver a great talent experience. And and you continue to make those quarters. All right. So I'll tell you something else that blew my mind. Again, coming from Oracle, the game is you get to the last three days of the quarter. Everybody knows that the discount comes out and uh, you start working people and it's midnight, the last day of the quarter. And suddenly, magically, all the deals get done. And I get to LinkedIn and, and I'm like, uh, can I see the discount table, please? And, and again, Mike D says, no discount table. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, we don't have a discount table. And I couldn't, I didn't believe him at first. There, there's no discounting at LinkedIn. Who came up with that crazy <laughs> harebrained idea? Yeah. So 
gosh, I don't know if I came up with that or if I just agreed with it. And the real author of that idea was on our on our team it was something that several of us definitely felt strongly about. And, yeah. and the reason is because we had the concept of integrity was, was part of our culture, as it is in, in many, many successful companies. But how one manifests integrity in a practical sense in day-to-day business was something that I was really intrigued by. And I feel like one of the ways in a sales organization that you can do that is by having every similarly situated customer, meaning buys the same amount of the product in the same region, et cetera, because there are some externalities that do influence unit prices, but every similarly situated customer should pay the same amount for the product. So that, and the test that we had was you're ever hosting a dinner for a number of your customers and you're sitting around the table. I would never want to have one of my customers lean over to the other and say, hey, how much did you pay on that LinkedIn product? And have them feel lousy that they fail to negotiate the best price possible. I would much rather be able to look them all in the eye and say, you all are paying the same price, right? The, the, bad, the bad news of that is the price isn't getting lower. The good news is you know that you are getting the very best price and we don't have to waste time on this. And frankly, I, d- I did the same thing with the candidates that I hired as well. You know, ba- saying, listen, I respect you too much to play a game and pretend with you in the moments that we're just meeting. If we're going to be working together and we're going to have a, a relationship based on trust, it's going to start right now. I'm going to tell you the exact amount that I'm able to pay you. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that amount is sufficient. If it's not, so be it. And, and that's your right to say no, but I'm not going to put you in a situation where you have to negotiate against me because I have all of the cards in that. And it's not a fair way for us to start. And so it's just, it's just the price. So going back to this principle, uh, the Adlerian parenting concept, equality and mutual respect. I see that coming through in this, uh, mm. in this talk track here. Mm. Um, you, you Mike, definitely are known as an out of the box thinker, perhaps an iconoclast, uh, not afraid to go against the grain at the same time though, I've seen you roll with it. I've, I've seen you just be like, all right, let's do it and, and not make any waves. And that's a hard balance for people to get. You tend to, people tend to skew one way or another. How do you think about when is it time to break glass and when is it time to just roll with it? Gosh, that's a good question too, Jeff. You're a good interviewer. I don't think I've ever been asked that either. Nor, by the way, do I do I think I have a self-image that necessarily equates to one or other of those two poles. So in just trying to be spontaneously introspective on it, I think I would say what I try to do is what feels right for me. And sometimes that and to be true to that. And sometimes that correlates well with the accepted version of what's right to do and sometimes less so. But I think there's also a practical aspect of picking your battles. And I know that I'm wrong a fair amount of times, like pretty frequently. And so just because I've, I think it's, there's, a, there's something that's, that's right to do, if it's, if it's a moral thing, then I'm kind of unswerving in my commitment to it. But if it's an intellectual thing, I'm often wrong. And so for example, in a business context, if there may be a decision to go left or go right, and I want to go left and others want to go right, I'm very open to going right and giving it a try. And I think what's most important to me, I think, is learning and quickly and being yeah. honest about when we're succeeding and failing and then just being ready to iterate. Yeah. That's Mike Gamson, CEO of Relativity. When we come back, Mike talks about the moment when he realized he totally missed the boat on diversity, equity, and inclusion and what he decided to do about it. Stay with us. 
I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Mike Gampson, CEO of Relativity. Today, you won't find a bigger proponent of DEI than Mike, but he'll be the first to admit that this was not always the case. His journey towards greater self-awareness provides an inspiring example of how a few well-timed comments from a friend can make a radical difference in someone's life. Let's get back to the discussion. All right, another another move that I love that you you were really a driver behind at LinkedIn, going into Detroit and opening up an office there. What was the story behind the Detroit office? I haven't thought about these things in so long. It's actually it's, it's fun. So the Detroit office. So a number of years ago, this was probably I don't know, maybe this is six or seven years ago, something like that. I began to get very interested in maybe eight years ago, in in the idea that we were talking about LinkedIn at the time, that talent is distributed evenly, but opportunity is not. And which I think is still resonates as as true today as it did when we were talking about it years ago. And that as I was observing the technology companies like LinkedIn or Microsoft or Google, Facebook, Salesforce, et cetera, creating these extraordinary economic opportunities and career opportunities for folks who were fortunate enough to live near those offices, there was an observation. And again, I'm traveling around the world all the time here. I'm seeing many cities where tech isn't thriving. And yet there are people in those cities who are as talented as any other people in any other city. And so it struck me, and and now at this time, the sales organization at LinkedIn had grown substantially. I was was going from an individual contributor to a senior manager who was managing thousands of people with significant resources. And I woke up to the fact that actually I could do something about that and that I could, I was empowered to make a case and use the platform of LinkedIn to open an office that would deliver pretty incredible economic opportunity to a group of professionals who may not have a lot of opportunities to work in first-rate tech companies like LinkedIn. And all we had to do to do it was just decide it was worth doing. And it was an incredibly empowering feeling to bring together people at LinkedIn and say, hey, I think our next office should be in a place that doesn't get a lot of tech and is going to deliver a lot of community benefit. We, we said, okay, great. How much how big do we think the benefit could be? So, well, gosh, what if we could deliver $100 million of, of salary benefit over a few-year period of time into a community where that would really matter? And then we went through a process. Is it close to an airport? Does it have you know, an educated community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? All the criteria for is the talent pool big enough and can we logistically handle it? And there was a number of cities across the U.S. that fit that description well. And then we went with Detroit and we had an extraordinarily successful experience of both working with local leadership in Detroit, finding a great building, working with the the global facilities team at LinkedIn to build out a fantastic building there. And then we met incredible people from Detroit who ended up being very, very successful at LinkedIn. And it was just a wonderful marriage of of veteran LinkedIn folks and local Detroit folks. And it it was really fantastic. I love what you said, and, and this was a mantra, talent is evenly distributed, opportunity is not. And this gets us into the conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion, which I know is, a, is an important theme for you. 
was that always a focus for you or was there kind of this moment of revelation when you realized, man, I got to focus on this? Yeah. Unfortunately, the latter, you know, I, I wish I could say that I was born enlightened on this and that I had operated in my life in an enlightened way, but it's not, it's not the case at all. Actually, I would say like many men of privilege, white men of privilege in the United States who, you know, I went through most of the first half of my life unaware of all the advantages that accrued to me because I'm just a white man in the United States. And I didn't know that I was running downhill with the wind at my back all the time. And then I thought the world was just smiling at me all the time, was a kind and gentle place that was ready to do whatever bidding I wanted it to do. And, and when, I, when I got to LinkedIn, and by, and by the way, I had every opportunity to learn otherwise. You know, I'm a brother between two strong sisters. I'd already mentioned my mom. Uh, my great grandma is the matriarch in our family. Her name's Pearl, who we named our daughter after. The first company, the first tech company I worked for was a female founder, CEO, and a female CTO. You know, I had been surrounded by incredible women my whole life. My wife is amazing, you know, strong women, friends, et cetera. And yet, when I got to LinkedIn and I had this amazing opportunity to start a team from scratch, from zero people that went into the many thousands, in the beginning, I hired unconsciously, like so many people like me have done in the past, people who felt right, felt like I could just work with them fast. They would hit the ground running. And when I, when I turned around after a short you know, period of time, a, a blink of a year or two, I had hired a team of people that were a lot like me, mm-hmm. Most, mostly white guys from similar academic backgrounds with similar interests who even kind of looked the same, frankly. And, and it wasn't until a woman on my team at, at we, we, uh, as, you, as you know, Justin, we, we hosted a big annual rah-rah internal event, which is a wonderful time. And uh, we had just gotten off stage for the morning session talking about all the great accomplishments that the team had made, et cetera. And a woman, and I thought we had killed it. Like I was coming off stage exuberant with the performance, if you will. And this woman pulled me aside and said, hey, Mike, uh, do you realize that the entire morning, it was all men on that stage, really all white men? And I said two bad things next. You know, the first was that, no, I didn't even realize it. I was literally blind to it. And the second was, well, this was just a department head meeting. Those were all the department heads. And she's like, that's the freaking problem. (laughs) And so I really did have a lightning bolt moment there. And the lightning bolt moment helped me to prioritize learning and getting educated about what I needed to be a more effective modern leader. And then it was through pretty incredible mentorship and coaching from folks like Fern Mendelbaum, who's an amazing mentor to me in this space and to my team, and a number number of others who, who leaned in and really helped me open my eyes to what it meant to be a more inclusive, open-minded leader, a modern leader, frankly. Uh, and so for the last 10 years or so, I've been doing everything I can to unpack the couple prior decades of uh, socialization to the counter and do what I can to, to be a more inclusive leader. That that philosophy and a willing to put your money be where your mouth is, I think has kind of trickled through the entire company. Remember when I first got there and Dreamforce was the big event for us. I was on the LinkedIn sales solutions team and we had an opportunity to have a, a major spot on a panel during, during Dreamforce. And the person from LinkedIn that was invited declined it. And I went to that person and I said, how could you decline this free publicity, amazing forum? And he said, I'm a white guy. I looked at the panel. Everybody else was a white guy. And I told the organizer, that's not the sales 
or culture that I believe in. And if you can't get a more diverse panel, I'm not going to do it. Well, guess what? A couple of days before the panel, suddenly it got more diverse and, and he took the gig. And you can argue that's a little contrived, but you know what? As more people stand up and say this is important, suddenly everybody's mind changes. And Mike, I got to be honest with you. I was not thinking about those issues either before I got into an environment where other people were thinking about them. And as they talked about it, I started talking about it. And I realized I didn't create this belief at that moment that it was important. I realized that it actually was inherently important to me and I needed to pay attention to that belief. Yeah, I think that's it's a great example. And I think, you know, everyone's at a different spot on their journey with this. I think it's a yeah. it's a newer, it's a newer thing in the world to get comfortable talking about. And as again, as a as a as a guy who grew up in privilege to get comfortable even with my privilege. Yep. So so I I, I appreciate the question. All right. You uh you mentioned briefly getting off the stage feeling elated because of your quote unquote performance. I will say, Mike. I've seen many speakers. You are at the top of the echelon. And the thing, there are two things that are extraordinary about you. Number one, this conversation that we're having today can happen between you and thousands of people, or it can happen one-on-one and you feel like you're getting the same guy. Number two, um, it's it feels spontaneous. It always feels it's not contrived. Were you just like when you were born, did you just come out as a public speaker or is this something <laughs> you focused on? First of all, Thank you. That's very kind of you to, to say, and I, I appreciate that very, very much. Uh, no, I, I definitely not. I practiced, uh, and I've never met someone who's naturally amazing at public speaking. So I would say my, my own journey, which is definitely a journey I'm still on, had a few pieces that were really important to put together into something that I became more comfortable but the, the first part was around, frankly, and this is, this is both the most important one and the, perhaps the least insightful, which is just to practice. Like, I mean, like a ton. And, and someone told me a long time ago that the difference between professionals and amateurs at anything, and they're using a basketball analogy at the time, was that uh, an amateur will, will, will practice until they make the shot and a pro will practice until they can't miss. You know, that picture of that amazing NBA star who shoots a thousand free throws still. And I think that I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So for me, that meant deconstructing the process of public speaking into its component parts and practicing those component parts. So I don't mean that I say the words in a speech a number of times. I actually don't. I usually only have one good speech in me. I can't repeat a speech twice. Uh, otherwise, it begins to feel false. But I went. I wanted to go do a ton of public speaking. So actually, when I, I had in my in my. Uh, Eight years prior to coming to LinkedIn, when I was at Advent Software, I was on the conference circuit there. I did a lot of conferences. But when I got to LinkedIn, and the idea of social media was a new thing for me. Consumer internet was new to me. And I think speaking in front of your peers is the most intimidating thing. Speaking in front of strangers, much less intimidating. And so I decided to just go out and do, I was shooting to do 100 speaking gigs. I thought if I could book myself, and this was before you know, LinkedIn had real brand, and booking a speaking gig mean I was on the phone booking something. And I and these were not like grand events. I literally like spoke to at my public library in my suburb to my mom and some you know seventy year old mom friends uh, back then. So I don't mean glorious things, but I was there for me, not for them. I wanted to just get the words out. I wanted to just practice. What was my what was my pitch? What was my what was my flow? And then I had a lot of coaching. Uh, I used to have at Advent Software. There was an amazing head of marketing, Mary, and she would sit in the crowd and she would tell me afterwards with listed notes, 
Mike, you were slouching or your elbows were stuck to your body the whole time. Use your shoulders or you were pacing too quickly. It made me agitated. Walk to a spot, stand on a spot, make eye contact with someone, move from that spot. And so there was a lot of physical body dynamics that I was coached on very well. And then in the early days of LinkedIn, uh, Dan Shapiro, who's now the COO of LinkedIn, the very close friend and collaborator of mine. And he's, he's one of the people, along with Brian Frank and a number of others who have a just a ton of the success of LinkedIn on, on really on, on their hard work. Dan and I would critique each other. So we would, you know, we were often passing the mic from one to the other and go sit into the, the crowd and say, hey, that sounded great. But this thing that you did there, I think maybe you could have been a little better if you would have done X or Y. And so I think just seeking coaching. So practice a million times, seek coaching and feedback. And then the last bit of advice, Jeff Weiner uh, shared with me in one of his public speaking tips, which is three things. Know, know your audience. So know who you're speaking to. If you're speaking to a group of orthodontists or a group of engineers or a mixed crowd, you have to use different stories and language to connect with them. Speak with passion. So really decide what your content is, because if you're not attached to your content, people are going to feel it. And then know your material better than anyone else in the audience, or you should switch places with them. Mm. And so for me, Justin, that meant really picking what I want to talk about and having it be exclusively things that I felt inspired by and touched by. Because as a, as a listener, when your speaker really is, is feeling it, you feel it. But when your speaker is just reading slides, then there's almost no connection that's possible. Awesome. Great advice. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Relativity. What is relativity, relativity all about? Yeah. Relativity is an extraordinary Chicago-based company. It's an unstructured data management company. It's really fueled by AI and machine learning. And we help the legal industry and compliance industry and really any regulated company manage the unstructured data of today's communications, whether that's emails or that's Slack messages or Teams, et cetera, these Zoom meetings. All of this information, if you're in an industry where there might be a litigation or a compliance issue, you have an obligation to be able to parse through all that information. And ultimately, our mission, which is to organize data, discover the truth, and act on it, empowers the folks who use our software to do exactly that, to really get on top of that mountain of data and to find the needle in the haystack that they're looking for. So you came off of a very large job. We already talked about it, LinkedIn. But when you stepped into the CEO, seat, I guess, sat in the CEO seat. What, what kind of a mind shift did you need to undergo or, or how did you need to change your swing up? I think a big dose of humility was the first piece. You know, I was succeeding an extraordinary founder and CEO, Andrew Seja, who built the company really himself. He built the software, literally who's the engineer for it. And he, he had some very close collaborators and early you know, co-founding partners, Nick Robertson as an example. But this was Andrew's company for 15 years, 16 years that, that he was running it. And so taking over a successful company from the founding engineering leader is something that's it's much, much different from what I've done in the past. So, so first, I was it was a lot of humility because I had so much to learn. And Andrew was an extraordinary teacher and mentor to me, both explicitly about our industry in legal technology and compliance, about our product, which is a really deep and powerful enterprise software product, but also just about being a CEO for this kind of company. And, and I, had, I had been, thankfully, you know, I'm a mentee of, of Jeff Weiner and a close friend, and I had been pulling from him and other CEOs 
stories of their experiences to kind of pack away in my memory banks for future uh, use when I was confronted with with new experiences. But but moving to relativity was really about learning again. And it was a smaller company than the team I had managed. Relativity is about a thousand or so people when I joined, but a much broader remit in an industry that I was almost wholly ignorant about. And so really understanding what drove our customers, what did they need from us, and how could I learn enough about our actual technology so that I could help our company prioritize and make the decisions that we needed to ultimately fulfill our mission and our vision. As you think about your role now as CEO, what were the experiences or the moments that surprised you the most in terms of the way they prepared you to be a CEO? I think one of the surprises is, like many things, it's not that different from anything else. So, so let me just start by kind of de- the demystifying <laughs> and, de- and de-escalating, you know, for anyone who's listening, who is, is in any kind of job, you know, I think leadership generally has a responsibility for, for doing several things. You know, from uh, a mentor of mine, Fred Kaufman, used to say that a leader's responsibility relative to culture is to set the standard, to demonstrate the standard, and hold others accountable to the standard, which I think is absolutely true for a CEO. And something that I that I remember hearing Satya from Microsoft say, which I, which I just love, is that a leader's responsibility is to create clarity, to generate energy, and to deliver results. And if you just kind of think about those two triplets, and you apply them to whether you are head of a marketing team or a sales team or engineering team, a product team, a talent team, or you're the CEO, I think they're largely true. You know, I spend an extraordinary amount of my time trying to create clarity about what we should be doing, who should be doing what, what is the prioritization with limited amount of resources to pursue an extraordinary amount of opportunity? How do we do that and why? And then creating context for others who aren't always in the room where the decisions happen, but need to understand the why behind the what in order to really be able to autonomously pursue those goals. And so I think there's much more in common with other leadership roles than things that are different. All right. Great, great wisdom. Thank you for demystifying. Uh, we're going to, I always like to come full circle and where we begin. We started with Viva Burritos. We're going to end with regenerative farming. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about regenerative farming. Yeah, this is a deep rabbit hole that I'm very interested in right now <laughs> and committed to, by the way, uh, as a side hustle. So regenerative farming is, it's really the evolution of organic farming with an eye towards regenerating the health of the soil, the ecosystem, the biodiversity, uh, our gut and our physical health, and, and even the economic health of rural communities by getting away from large-scale corporatized monocropping with you know, thousands of acres of corn and soy and lots of chemicals to, to kill the bugs and kill the weeds and getting back to small-scale organic farming where you know, a family-sized farm can be run profitably making delicious food that can be delivered locally and trying to make that both economically viable and scalable. And so I'm, I have a real passion area around regenerative farming. All right. How are you putting that philosophy into practice in your own life? A few areas. Uh, so as I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a serious cook. And so, you know, it started with this little organic garden in our yard um, that, that moved over the last few years. Uh, we, we bought a farm a few years ago and have begun to uh, do real farming. And then, and then uh, a, a little while back, started, uh, started an organization called Sana Farms, which is helping to connect 
would-be farmers who want to run a farm in a regenerative way but lack the capital to get started. Insana Farms connects farmers with capital and a playbook for how to run their farm and get it up and running. Mike, it has been an incredible pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Justin. It's always a pleasure to connect. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.